Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. We're less than two weeks into the month of June, and already it's been an eventful month in the markets. And that's set to continue this week with the release of May CPI data. That's coming out on Tuesday. Of course, we'll be hearing from the Fed as well. The FOMC meeting concluding on Wednesday of this week. That will finally answer the question of whether the Fed will pause their rate hike. So a lot coming out, a lot to discuss this week. And joining us as usual for the CIO Strategy Snapshot Conversation, glad to welcome back Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho. Jason, great to be with you here on a Monday morning, and thank you for joining us. Looking forward to our conversation. Good morning, Jen. Happy Monday. It's good to be here for another uh, another week, an active week for sure. Absolutely. So before we get to the events coming up over the next few days, Jason, it might be helpful to set the stage a bit. Can you summarize for our listeners, our clients, the recent market performance and anything noteworthy about it? Well, you mentioned it's uh, already been an active June, and it's evident in the market. You know, so if we take performance across different asset classes since May 31st, that was a Wednesday, um, it's been a risk-on environment in markets in the month of June. You know, the S&P 500 is up about 2.2% uh, through from June 1st through June 9th, which was last Friday. But if you look under the hood, there was clearly kind of a rotation towards some of the market laggers this year. You know, the best example of that is small cap stocks that are up 6.7% in June in, in those seven trading days. Year to date, they're up 6.6%, which means the entire performance this year has come in those seven trading days. Uh, if you look at the performance in other areas of the market, like cyclical stocks, the energy, uh, materials, industrials, even financials, uh, and a lot of that kind of overlaps with value, they've also done very well. Whereas the leaders this year, which is still by far leaders, like the tech space, uh, you know, some stocks in consumer discretionary, some communication services, they are the relative laggers over the past, you know, you know roughly two weeks. Um, similar story in credit, you know, the risky parts of the credit market have done, you know, quite well, as have commodities. Well, then you look at treasury yields, they've drifted a little bit higher, the U.S. dollar has come down. So, you know, you know, overall story is a positive environment of risk for risk taking thus far in June. So, Jason, I, I want to point out how you recently published a blog. Title is Disinflation or Resilient. And the blog discusses why both of those words are leading finance words of the year candidates, that in your estimation. So, Jason, can you elaborate on why you think that is and how this relates to the market performance you just spoke of? Well, last December, I published a blog uh, you know, titled, you know, Word of the Year. By the second time I've done it. And it was meant to sort of predict you know, what could be the, in, within the finance community, the investment community, what is the kind of word that's going to really dominate this year? And I suggested it to be disinflation, but the idea, not so much that it's, you know, predicting how much disinflation there would be, but rather as a market-driving narrative term force, it would be dominant all throughout the year because we'd expect inflation to come down, but the magnitude of it would determine whether the markets do well or, or not. Uh, and so that was most of my prediction. And now almost at the halfway mark, I think that's a reasonable, you know, kind of, you know, uh, you know uh, conjecture. I think it still would be up near the top of the list of, of kind of words that really kind of dominate the finance markets this year. But if I'm really kind of being objective, I think my probably number one candidate at this moment will be the word resilient. And that's, you know, that going back to the title of the blog, disinflation or resilient question mark. And, and the reason I say that is that 
I find myself uh, using the word resilient as an adjective to describe how growth has been resilient or there's a resilient labor market or resilient consumer spending uh, to the point where like, I feel like I need to kind of go to thesaurus and find some sort of other words that are similar so I'm not just repeating myself. And it's not just me. I see this word like resilient used everywhere to kind of describe what's going on with, with economic activity. Uh, and really what it speaks to is that the economy is doing better than expected. The consensus view at the end of last year, you know, the start of this year was that the first half would be difficult if we're going to get a recession. It's going to sort of, you know, the economy is going to trough by the you know, second quarter, middle of the year, and then we get better as the year goes on. Well, we're seeing maybe a little bit of slowdown of activity, but still overall things have held up quite well. So you then combine the fact that disinflation is, is you know, going on, which is generally is good for asset prices because it means lower rates. You combine that with resilient growth, which is not as good as accelerating growth, but resilient does mean it's been better than expected. That should be a tailwind for, you know, for the markets. So, you know, that is kind of, I think, help explain why the markets overall this year have had a pretty good run, especially the, for the past two weeks, you know, the data that I just cited, that the markets have been kind of really kind of looking at this resilient growth story with disinflation, thinking this could lead to you know, a, a soft landing. So I think that's kind of, you know, really the two kind of, to me, kind of key macro narratives for the markets this year. And the question really is like, which of the two is more, more relevant? Both of them are relevant thus far. Well, interesting to hear about the cases for both as finance words of the year. We'll check in, I'm sure, in about six months to see which one of those prevail. But as we read further through the blog, Jason, maybe we can turn to the market outlook a bit. So within the blog, you do write that the pace of disinflation and the extent of growth resiliency matter, but so do other factors, including market pricing as well as investor sentiment. So can you expand on that a bit for us? Well, in my last blog about a week ago, I uh, entitled it Across the Marketverse. And the idea is that, you know, think of marketverse, multiverse, that there's a lot of kind of universes of, you know, or ways in which the markets could evolve from here, especially now that some of the, the more notable downside tail risks have been reduced or, or eliminated in the case of the debt ceiling. Uh, you know, the banking stress has stayed contained. So if you eliminate some of those downside risks, there's now you think about, well, there's still an upside risk of a soft landing. And the you know, distribution of outcomes is what I would characterize as relatively flat and fat, meaning like it's kind of fat tails at either end. Uh, I also sort of conjecture to that just from the, the outlook perspective that you know, rapid disinflation you know, over the next few months is more likely to fuel a risk rally than disappointing growth would be a headwinner cause a market pullback. You know, and the reason for that is you know, the more we get disinflation while growth is resilient, the more likely investors are going to shift the soft finance from being their upside scenario to becoming more of their base case and price that across markets. So it actually be quite market moving. Whereas if, you know, if we get kind of slower growth or growth is even slower than expected, that's sort of in line with what people are already anticipating. Like there, there could be a recession later this year. Um, and, and they're somewhat positioned for that. So it would cause a bit of a headwind for the market, but it wouldn't it'd be more asymmetric for good news versus bad news. Now, regarding kind of the market pricing, then, it is increasing pricing in the soft landing. Going back to my opening comments of how you've started to see kind of a broadening out of more of the cyclical value parts of the market catching up over the past couple of weeks. So that's been true. But it's also interesting that investor sentiment is actually getting, I'd say, almost sort of bullish. Um, and this is despite the fact that if you ask most investors, they'd still say, well, you know, maybe a recession's been delayed, but it still seems like, you know, likely thing to happen by the end of this year, early next year. Uh, the way they kind of maybe square the circles that well, it could be a recession. It's going to be a really, really mild recession. 
and we're going to come out of it and the Fed's going to cut rates in there. So that uh, kind of helps them, you know, fuel the, the belief in the self learning. You know, whether they believe that or whether they have to chase performance because, you know, if, they, you know, if they're underweight, you know, as the markets run up, that's the pain trade for a lot of investors. So maybe they're just sort of chasing performance instead of using the macro as a justification. But it's still, if you look at other measures such as the VIX, you know, kind of a proxy for the, you know, the fear gauge in the market, it fell to three and a quarter uh, at the point last week. That's its lowest level since January of 2020. Before we even really were even talking about, you know, COVID, coronavirus, the pandemic, that was kind of before that really became you know, kind of entrenched. Uh, so similar, the AAII bulls, bears kind of sentiment measure surged its highest reading since November of 2021. That was before the Fed, you know, it was even talking about curtailing its bond purchases uh, and raising rates at all. So sentiment measures have definitely ticked up. It's consistent with the market performance. Um, but what it does mean, though, is there's a little bit, there's relatively little margin for error on the macro. Like, if there's sort of any disappointment, if inflation ends up staying sticky, if growth does disappoint, given what the markets are already pricing, that does set the stage for things to kind of pull back, given as investors are kind of getting sucked in into a little bit of, of how the market's performing and getting a little more optimistic themselves. So, Jason, we mentioned the Fed, that, of course, being another factor impacting the outlook, and we'll receive some more clarity on the Fed's policy actions when we hear from the FOMC Wednesday afternoon. What do you expect from the Fed this week, Jason, and going forward? We've been hearing lately more about a June skip rather than a June pause. And just to add on to this, how might the CPI data this week for May, how might that impact the Fed's outlook? Well, you're right that uh, what we could probably get on Wednesday, what we think is what I classify as a hawkish skip, meaning that they don't you know, hike, uh, and I base that off of comments and guidance from you know, Chair Powell and Vice Chair Jefferson, who've kind of used either implicitly or even explicitly that kind of language of talking about a skip. But at the same time, well, they all they update their economic projections, uh, their expectations for the Fed funds rate through the dot plot, which is kind of the consensus expectations or, or the individual expectations of the voting members. And you can see where there's the median. The median dot is likely to rise, meaning that even though the Fed doesn't hike this week, they intend to hike at least once more, maybe even more than that, later this year, with the implication being you know, July is the obvious time on which they would hike. Based on that sort of guidance, the market is pricing about a 30% chance of a hike on Wednesday, but a, but a 90% probability you know, of a hike on a cumulative basis by July. Meaning you know, if they don't do it in June, you know, you know, it's been quite likely they do it by July at this point in time. So in addition to, you know, you know uh, maybe skipping a meeting, raising their dot plot, also likely try to lay out some guidance for their policy intentions. And Powell, certainly in the press conference, will be asked a lot about that. Um, you know, they, if they do pause or they don't hike, they also want to leave all options on the table, including, like, the possibility of their future hikes. So every meeting going forward is, is going to be live. Um, this will be a you know, potentially tricky communication challenge. Um, to sound hawkish at the same time you've stopped hiking rates after you know, 500 basis points of hikes in you know, roughly you know, a little bit over a year and like three months. Uh, Fed might also, and Powell in particular, might emphasize also that, that they're worried about risks uh, on the upside and downside. So not only is the economy too hot, but also worrying about things slowing down, especially in the labor market. So giving a little nod to the fact that they have a dual mandate, not just by stability, but full employment. The FOMC outcome, though, really will hinge on uh, what we get with inflation on Tuesday. Um, either the inflation data is going to make their life easier or it's going to make it harder. 
And by that, I mean, if the inflation data comes in line with expectations or below, uh, it's probably going to be enough for the Fed to sort of justify not hiking, you know, increasing their guidance going forward, uh, which will then, you know, again, still be data dependent as we move into, you know, later into the summer. If, on the other hand, the CPI data is hotter than expected or running stronger than expected, and if the Fed doesn't hike, well, then you run the risk of the markets thinking, well, now the Fed has actually fallen behind the curve. Inflation is still elevated. It's running harder than expected. This could continue the summer. If it runs hot for July or for June, then we get an early July before the next FOMC meeting. Then you can have the market thinking, well, maybe they have to actually hike two more times, or maybe they even should consider a 50 basis point, something along those lines, which if that's the case, then the market might think, well, the Fed, if they just hike now, could have been done with it. Instead, they're going to have to do even more, maybe two more hikes, three more hikes. That's a worse outcome for, for financial markets. So it, it could pivot as much on the inflation data that we get this week. And, and it is expected to decline. The consensus has headline inflation falling from 4.9% in April to 4.1% in May, uh, and for core inflation falling from 5.5 to 5.2. Um, but depending on how that data plays out, it can, you know, it can sort of alter both what the Fed does, but certainly what the Fed indicates and how the market responds to that. Well, it will be interesting to see what unfolds over the next few days. We will learn a lot more. So thank you, Jason, for setting that up for us. As we begin to wrap it up for this morning, can you speak a bit to what the recent market performance and these various factors you ran through with us, what those say about the investment outlook from here? And what should investors be doing at this time? You know, we categorized our uh 2023 year had outlooked as a year of inflection, but the idea that there'd be inflections in policy and growth and inflation. If we think about the markets the past couple weeks, it feels like there was a sort of inflection there with some of the, the laggards in the market kind of you know, catching up. Uh, and certainly also pricing in a more optimistic outcome for the U.S. economy. There is some justification for this, given some of the, you know, the decline in these downside tail risks and you add in with resilient growth. You know, the outlook looks, at least the distribution outlook looks, looks better today. But, you know, while the outlook has improved, the markets have rallied with it. And so we're kind of to where we were to some extent a few weeks ago or in the past couple of months where investors kind of face a rel- relatively underwhelming risk return trade up for equities at the broad market level versus, you know, high quality bonds where you can get, you know, you know, five plus percent for, you know, you know, very short maturity treasuries or, you know, over five percent, five and a half percent for high quality investment grade in your corporate bonds. An environment now where the S&P 500 is, Trading at a level of almost like 4,300 and 4,350, you know, uh, not a lot of upside given sort of the valuations for the markets overall. But I think when you look below the surface, the fact that we've seen, you know, some catch up in small caps, for example, you know, having a flat year to date versus, you know, um, now up 6.7% in June. I think that can also speak to that when you look at the markets overall, the U.S. equity market specifically, it really is a story of two different markets this year seven mega cap you know, tech stocks that are up on average over 70% and then everyone else. And so I think it's within that everyone else category that investors you know, kind of should be looking somewhat judiciously for, for opportunities. So it's a little bit difficult at this point in time as markets move higher to sort of be negative overall, you know, or on everything in equities as opposed to, yes, at a broad index level, the risk reward is not compelling. That's where instead of sort of like buying market exposure, I think you have to get a little bit more selective and there are opportunities there within the U.S. markets, but also if you look outside of the U.S., where it's sort of been a similar story. Other markets have done okay, but not you know fantastically well. Like emerging markets have actually lagged 
you know, performance of the large cap tech in the U.S., but also large lagged Europe and Japan. So there's certainly scope for emerging markets to, you know, to kind of catch up. Um, but otherwise, you know, the other, you know, kind of the other half of this equation is on the fixed income side, we still like, you know, high quality bonds that you know, still attract, offer attractive yield uh, in this environment where there's a lot of macro uncertainty. So it's not a bad idea for investors to think about making sure they have the proper allocation within fixed income, balancing, kind of hide it out in cash to some extent, but also lock it into these higher yields, um, you know, as if the rates do kind of drift lower if the economy slows down to kind of give you that duration protection as well. So stop there and pass it back to you, Dan. Jason, very much appreciate your insights and time this morning. Very helpful as we embark on a critical week here and do look forward to catching up with you again next week to see how these events play out and how the markets are impacted. Though, Thank you again, Jason, for your time this morning. Appreciate it as always. You're welcome. Have a great week. Likewise, Jason. Thank you. And again, today we have been joined by Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Before we close out, I do want to point everyone to Jason's blog, which he has been making reference to during our conversation here on Top of the Morning today. That title again is Disinflation or Resilient. The blog can now be located on UBS.com slash CIO. For clients of UBS, please be sure to reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of Jason's blog directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.